morning's message is probably going to be a little bit different out of the ordinary. We, um, this is kind of what you call in the pastor world a free Sunday. Last weekend was Christmas. This weekend is another kind of holiday. And uh, so it's kind of one of those in-betweener weeks. And uh, next week we kick off, we'll start into the book of Ephesians for the new year. So you kind of got to throw away Sunday. So you're just going to get garbage today, basically, <laughs> in between. No, I'm kidding. And so today's really going to kind of be more from a personal aspect kind of a passage of scripture that's been um, kind of on my heart and my mind over the last year, and kind of sometimes you hear something that you can't get rid of or put down, and this is one of those passages, and for me, that kind of is constantly ringing in my head. And so let's dig in here, Matthew 15, beginning with the first verse. Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? for they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother, What you would have gained from me is given to God, he need need not honor his father or mother. So for the sake of your tradition you have made void the word of God, you hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. The word of the Lord. Well, it was probably about this cold, actually, and it was a Saturday morning rather than a Sunday morning. About 16 years ago, I was working for Pepsi Bottling Company, and I would go into the grocery stores or Walmart or Shopco on the weekend and stop stock pop on the shelves. And New Year's Year's weekend and Fourth of July weekend were always just pure torture. You just basically worked all night and all day, constantly restocking shelves. Well, I was working in Elberly, Minnesota at the time and uh, got to work about 4.30 a.m. on that Saturday morning. And uh, the person at Hy-Vee had left a note saying, hey, there's a shipment on way from Rochester and we need to make room here in the back room for it before it comes in the afternoon, be ready for the big day on Sunday. And so I do my normal work, but then I'm like, okay, I got to get this done. So I take all of the pop out of the back room, which is about six pallets that day, and I take it up front, and I ask, you know, can I put this in the cart area up front where you kind of store the carts in the grocery store? And they said, yeah, that'll work. We're pretty busy today, so it's not all, the cart corral's not always going to be full. So I take the six pallets, and they say, though, you're going to have to break it down, though. Put the six into two which means you're going to put two and then take the four left and stack them on top of the two. I'm like, no problem. So I take four pallets, stack them on top of the two, and get all of that done. That's not just 20 minutes of work. That's a lot of labor. And so you wonder why I'm addicted to Mountain Dew is when you, drink, when you lift that many 12-packs of Mountain Dew, staring at it, it just kind of becomes part of who you are. <laughs> and so I get done that day, everything's, everything's stocked. Come back that afternoon, later in the afternoon, kind of to do a refill. And the store manager there is there this time. And he comes up to me and he says, I, I, I got to apologize to you. I forgot to tell the assistant manager last night before I left that shipment wasn't meant for Albert Lee. It was meant for Austin. And here's what we're going to need you to do. We're going to need you to move those pallets of pop that you put in the cart corral and put them in the back room again before tomorrow morning. So you're telling me that I just hand-lifted four pallets of pop for nothing. Yeah, pretty much. Go ahead and move them. 
You can about imagine how happy I was at that point. You go to all of that work, you can very simply said, all of that work was done in vain. It meant absolutely nothing. I guarantee you that no one walked into the grocery store that day and bought more pop because I did that. I guarantee you that nobody felt better because all of the pop was there and they had this nice empty area in the back room for a little while. All of that work was done in vain. And when I heard that message from the store manager that day of, you're going to have to move it, I was just like, oh, really? I mean, it it takes a few minutes and then before you even want to go back, you just kind of wander around the store for a while before actually going and starting to work again. Because you hear that your work is worthless. When you hear that from a store manager at Hy-Vee and you're like that, how much more, though, if you hear from God himself, the creator of the universe, who comes and says to you, everything you've done is in vain. Everything you've done is worthless. Can you imagine if you had to hear those words from God, the one who you had given your life to, the one who you had given all of your time to, and you heard, it's all been done in vain. This morning in Matthew chapter 15, we hear Jesus interacting with some religious leaders. And as he's interacting with some religious leaders, he quotes a prophecy from the Old Testament. He says, this is the prophets speaking about you. And what did the prophets say? The prophets said, Everything you're doing is in vain. And Jesus says this to the religious leaders. Everything you're doing is in vain. Now these religious people, Pharisees and scribes, they get beat up a lot in the church. But you have to remember, the Pharisees and the scribes, it's not like they were out killing people. It's not like they were out stealing money from everybody. The Pharisees and the scribes were by our day and age really good church people. They would have been top of the confirmation class. They had everything memorized, not just Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Try that on for size. They didn't just have that memorized. They had interpretations of that memorized. They didn't just come to the temple for an hour a week and listen to a 30-minute sermon. They went for multiple hours on that day, and then they also went once every day. There was no lack of commitment. There was no lack of activity. There was a lot of activity. But what does Jesus say to them? In vain do they worship me. When I hear those words from Jesus, that actually scares me a little bit. I think should probably actually scare all of us this morning because for the majority of us this morning, we're the religious people. Most of us have grown up in the church. Most of us have been active religiously our whole lives. Most of us have participated in a variety of traditions. Compared to the rest of our country, compared to the rest of the world, we're the one percenters. We've participated in everything. And so when Jesus says to a religious person, in vain, do you worship me? That should get our attention. That should actually cause us to go, wow, what would would cause Jesus to say something to 
because my life looks a lot like the Pharisees' life. This morning isn't meant to, to scare us, but is more meant to give us a reality check and to ask, you know, what would Jesus say to us? Do Jesus' words that were said to the religious people then apply to you and I today? Well, the question we have to ask then is, why was their activity in vain? Why were the Pharisees and the scribes said that their work was done in vain? This should, this should pique your interest greatly. We should want to know, why, why does Jesus say their work is worthless? Well, Jesus does not say their work is worthless because they're traditionalists. This is important to understand because this is automatically where some people go. Oh, tradition is horrible. Get rid of Jesus was against tradition. Did you see what Jesus did? He was always against the religious leaders. But we leave off the second half of this. Do you remember where Jesus always was? In the temple. So it's not like Jesus said, get rid of the temple. No, he said, clean out the temple. So Jesus wasn't opposed to religion or tradition. He was opposed to empty tradition. Why was their activity worthless to God? Because their traditions did not protect or serve the promises of God. The traditions of the religious people did not protect or deliver the promises of God. So let me help you understand a little bit of the culture that was going on here a little bit. We read here in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus is interacting with these religious people and he's talking about the tradition of the elders. So in the Old Testament, you've got Genesis, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, which was considered the moral law, the ceremonial law given to God's people. And for you and I, we're familiar with the moral law. The simplicity of it is the Ten Commandments, right? You shall have no other gods. Um, honor your father and mother. Do not commit adultery. Do not um, want what your neighbor has. That was considered the moral law. And there's still stuff beyond that, ceremonial law and other law. Well, then beyond that, there was what was called the tradition of the elders. This was the temple leaders, which through different eras might have been referred to as priests or Sadducees, Pharisees. And what they did is they put rules in place that protected the moral law. So it's kind of like this. You've got a rule that says, hey, don't go into that room and look at the presence. Right? That's the rule. Don't go into the room and look at the presence. But what you do is you say, you know what? We don't even want them to be tempted to go into the room and look at the presence. So we say, you can't even go down that hallway. So now you're what? You're one degree away from the what? The law. Don't go into that room to look at the presence. But then you say, you know what? They're really getting tempted. They're kind of looking down the dark hallway. They see a little light. They're thinking, you know what we need to do? Let's put a gate on the hallway. Because now we say, you know, you can't go down the hallway. Now we what? We make it impossible for them to go down the hallway. So I've built out some things to what? Protect the rule. Don't look at the presence in the room. Nothing wrong with this rule. Good rule. Don't look at the presence in the room. Nothing probably wrong with these things here to protect, especially if you've got a three-year-old that what? Is going to go down the hall. Or be tempted. See, so put up a gate. Makes a lot of sense. But now, all, so the tradition of the elders was, they were adding rules like that. So you had the, the rule, what? Basically, 
be generous to God. So they had a rule about estate planning, basically. And so what they did is they said you have to dedicate certain things or certain amounts to God. And so that's what it's talking about here in Matthew chapter 15. If you look with me here, down in verses 4 through 5. Look in verse 5. It says, but you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God. Given to God. This is the tradition that was put in place. So what they're talking about here is they're saying, hey, you religious leaders are following this tradition where you set aside a certain portion of your estate for God. And so it's dedicated to God. Now here's the weird part of this whole thing. The estate that they had set apart for God, they could still use that estate while they were living for continuing to make a profit or continuing for anything else. So kind of an odd little, it's almost like one of those little tax loopholes that was built in to the system. So they had a, a loophole already in it. And so now, though, you've got a father or mother coming to you who has set aside. So let's make this really simple. Let's say that you own three goats. And you set aside two of those goats in your estate to be given to the temple to honor God at your death. Your mother or your father comes to you and says, we have no milk. Could we have one of your goats? And you say, well, I've got three goats. This one is for our immediate family. But these two goats, these two goats are dedicated to the Lord. And so we don't have anything. Sorry, Mom and Dad, we can't help you. So that's it. <laughs> okay. okay, but they could use these two goats for what? For profit. But here's what was going on. They're like, well, I'm already honoring God because I'm dedicating these two goats in my estate for God. So I'm honoring God. I don't need to fill the commandment, honor your father and your mother. So Jesus comes along, and can you kind of catch the hypocrisy yourself a little bit? If you and I can catch the hypocrisy, imagine the one who wrote the rules. Okay, you say you're honoring God by setting this part of your estate aside, but you're not honoring your father and mother by meeting the need that's right in front of you. They had set up these traditions to protect the rule, be generous to God. So they set up these estate rules that made it appear as though they were being generous to God. But where were their hearts? Their hearts were in the prophet. Their hearts were in the prophet from the two goats making milk and cheese. There was no heart towards the generosity of God because they were getting it both ways. They had prophet today. And they had the respect of God because they had set aside something for him down the road. Jesus gets right to the heart and says, it's worthless. This activity is, is worthless. It means nothing. Why? Because you're missing the whole point. You set up all of these rules. And you're following these rules that are out here. But guess what? In the midst of that, you're not fulfilling the rule that's being protected back here. In other words, why their activity was in vain. Well, because their activity was simply going through the motions of religious tradition. They were going through the motions of religious tradition. Again, hear this very clearly and carefully. 
going through the motions of tradition is not bad in and of itself. But going through the motions of tradition, where the motions do not flow from your heart, is going through the traditions in vain. So what's the role of tradition? What's the role of tradition? Tradition is actually commanded in the Bible. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul says, hey, follow these traditions that I'm passing down to you. And then in 2, Corinthians chapter, or 2 Thessalonians chapter 5, he says it again, hey, I'm passing some traditions down to you. And he doesn't really explain what these traditions are. But he's telling the people, hey, I've given you some practices or some traditions. Practice them. So traditions are not bad. The point of tradition is to protect the gospel. What I mean by that is this. You put things in place, guardrails in place, that are going to guarantee that the gospel is proclaimed to the coming generations. Let me give you just a small example in our current church makeup of the country around us that you may think doesn't apply to you at all, but it's a big deal. There's been a tradition. The tradition has been that churches set aside an individual to be the teaching elder, or sometimes known in our culture as a pastor. They would set aside a teaching elder. That teaching elder would dedicate themselves to the study of Scripture. And so then what that teaching elder did is that teaching elder exposited, big word for laying forth the plain meaning of the Bible to the people. And so that one person was supposed to dedicate extra time to what? To get a deeper understanding of everything. And so the tradition has been that you would send people off to seminary, is what we call it in our culture, where they would learn Hebrew and Greek and other things so they could understand the scripture to explain it to the people. A good, very, very good thing. That was basically in place from Jesus on. Okay, what's happening in our culture today is this. Well, we don't really need to do that anymore. Because we've got all these gifted TV evangelists. And so what we can do is these pastors can now learn from these TV evangelists. Okay, sounds good in theory because then it really sounds like this. Hey, we can save you $10,000 a year, church, because you don't have to pay for seminary. Well, that just, that right? Oh, I see the businessmen smiling right now. The church budget just got a lot healthier. Well, that makes a lot of sense. He can just listen to that message on Mondays, and then on Sunday, he can just give it to us in his own voice. Makes a lot of sense. So, what's wrong with that? What's wrong is this. We're living off of the lunch of someone else who's living off the feeding of God's word. And we're expecting that that lunch is healthy and appropriate for our specific context. When in reality, myself included, myself included, when in reality, every expositor has blind spots. And so if you live off of the diet of one, you're going to have that blind spot, but it's going to be magnified even more because you're not going back to what they were going back to. Now, I'm not arguing that every pastor has to be a Hebrew and a Greek scholar, but very practically, this affects you. This affects your children and your grandchildren. There's a good tradition here that should be maintained, but that tradition can become dangerous. It can become dangerous if we're like, oh, we've got a great teaching pastor really knows his Greek well. And so you never pick up a Bible yourself because you're living off of my lunch. And 
not meant to live off of my language. You're meant to live off of the word of God. I'm here to help guide and bring understanding to you. See how things can get dangerous in a hurry? So tradition can be good and is oftentimes very good. But at the same time, it can get dangerous in a hurry. And so Jesus attacks the religious leaders and says, whoa, 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 you're going through the motions, and this means absolutely nothing. Your worship is in vain. Imagine for a moment if Jesus came in here this morning and said, hey, did you the last hour and ten minutes? That was worthless. I think it's worthy of the time right now to ask ourselves, what would cause Jesus to come in here and say, wow, that last hour and ten minutes was worthless? We've come to a very dangerous place in the church world. Worship has become popular. Right now, hang with me for a second. You might be thinking, well, that's a good thing, right? Worship should be popular. Absolutely. But what I mean, worship has become popular that we now have worship bands that you pay to go see. You pay to worship. Let that sit in your heart for a moment, Okay. That's absurd. You pay to worship. So here's what happens of that. Now the effect of that is this. We have people that will leave church today at our church and all throughout the city, and they'll leave and they'll be like, I didn't really enjoy worship this morning. I didn't really like, the drummer is just too loud, and he's a little offbeat, by the way. Not, not our drummer, not our drummer. Right? Oh, and that, I think he was singing a C flat when he's supposed to be singing a V sharp. Uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't really, I didn't hear any of those songs on KWC last week, and I just really didn't like it this morning. It's happening all around us. I didn't really feel it. I didn't have any tingling in my hands when I lifted them up. And when I closed my eyes, nothing special really happened. It's, it's happening all around us. People leave, and they say that's how they gauge worship. Well, how does Jesus gauge worship? Jesus does not gauge worship by how you feel. Jesus does not gauge worship by the type of music, soft, loud, organ, guitar, drums, not at all, none of it. Jesus gauges worship by the consistency of your heart. Every time in the Old Testament when Jesus came and said, your gathering is absolutely worthless, it was not because of the quality of the band. It was not because of the quality of the preacher. It was because of the quality of the living of the people that were there. Your worship is valid when your Wednesday morning is also lived in worship. Your worship is valid when your heart is seeking to adore God on Saturday morning when you're not at corporate worship. Every time that the people got in trouble, that Jesus, that God sent a prophet and said, this is ridiculous. It's because their actions did not match the heart of God. And so this morning in Amos, we were reading this prophet, you're probably like, who's that guy? You know, it's a prophet in the Old Testament that God sent to his people to give a message. So in Amos chapter 5 that we read this morning, the prophet just says, I'll put it in just very simple terms, you idiots, you blind people, what are you doing? And God very simply says, I don't accept any of it. Your sacrifice, your festival, and that's not just an hour and ten minutes. Your six-hour little gathering of sending off all of these senses, guess what? It's worthless. Why? He's, the prophet says it. 
because righteousness and justice have not been established in your society. And you say that God is the king of your society. You see, you're coming here on Sunday morning, Saturdays maybe for them. You're coming here and you're having this little festival. But then on Monday, you're ignoring the widow on the street corner. You're ignoring the orphan in the school. This little gathering here is worthless. Jesus would declare our worship this morning worthless, not based upon the quality of our service, but based upon the quality of our hearts. If our hearts, if our being are in a place that say, I want to honor God in all that I do. This morning, are you going through the motions or are the motions an outflow of a transformed heart? Here's the complexity of the whole situation. Emotions can be there without the heart. But there will always be motions if there's the heart. Okay, so this can get confusing. And this is why you and I, and this is why this passage is so much on my heart, is because activity can be so deceiving to the soul. Religiosity can be so deceptive. Appearances can give a false sense of confidence. Because there's people all around us and sometimes in our own, my own self, in your own self, where we give the appearance that all is well, when in reality, all is not well. We've got to be very careful to judge off of appearance. Yet at the exact same time, where it gets complicated. When the heart has been transformed, guess what's going to happen? Jesus says there will be fruit. He says in Matthew chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, what does a fruit tree, do, fruit, fruit tree do? It bears good fruit. And so if your heart has been changed by God, guess what's going to happen in your life? There's going to be fruit. Why in the Lord's Prayer do we say, forgive us as we forgive others? It's not conditional, but it's just a basic expectation. If God's forgiven us, guess what's going to happen? We're going to forgive others. So this morning, how's your heart? inner being, the governor of your life? Is it in a position that says, I want to adore and honor God? Worship involves action. Raising hands. Good thing. It's a great thing. But is that coming out of a heart that says simply, I just want to honor God? Worship is going to bring action throughout the week of standing up for justice and kindness and righteousness. But it all begins in the heart. Otherwise, the actions are in vain. I've been working with a business individual over the last year, an individual that I had met actually through their, through their children, these business people that have done very well for themselves, and their children have been big supporters of various ministry projects that I've had the opportunity to be involved in. And the, and the father is oftentimes at the company whenever I go and visit there. And whenever I go and visit there and walk into the room, the, the father almost always says the exact same thing. Well, it's good to know we got the big guy working for us today. And he's not talking about me. He's like, oh, the pastor's here. And since the pastor is here, that means we got the big guy working for our company. And so we're always kind of joking back back and forth. His kids' lives have been 
transformed, not through me at all. I've just been the recipient of the blessing of that. As kids' lives have been transformed, as kids give a lot of the company's money away to Christian ministry and Christian work of things. And so, but, but the dad, is, he really struggles with this big time. And he's just, well, his ending line, whenever we meet and kind of go through the giving plan, is always like, well, as long as the pastor thinks this amount's going to keep the big guy happy, I'll go for it. Okay, <laughs> sure. Yep, big guy's happy. So earlier this month, I'm there kind of for end of year stuff, and we're talking, and uh, we're just small talking. He's in the room, we're small talking. I'm talking with the children, and the children had listened to kind of our sermon message that we had during November where I was talking about adoption. And so they were asking about that and how that was going and everything. Father says absolutely nothing. And uh, get done with get done with that and go through the normal meeting. Company gives out their, their year-end giving, and, and the, the grandpa father says to me, get done with that. He says, hey, come into my office for a minute. So I walk into his office and say, hey, uh, you're, a, you're a good man, good man. You know, you know, grown men have a hard time, you know, showing humility at times. It's things past. You know, I, this is a really good thing you're doing. You know, helping these, you know, these kids need help. That's a good, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. And you know what? I, I, I should really. You, I'm not going to do it, but you do it. You know, I'm, I'm going to help you. Here's some money. I'm going to give you five thousand dollars to you and your wife to help, help with this. Normally, now this story is not to build me up at all. It's to take. So he, gets, he says that. And I don't know where this came from at the moment. I just said to him, I said, I said I'm sorry, I can't accept that, I can't accept that gift. And I, and I said back to him, I said, I said, the big guy upstairs doesn't need it. Well, you should tell my kids that. Then he, then he finishes with this sentence. Well, what does the big guy upstairs want? And I said to him, the big guy upstairs wants you to want to give that to him. And I said, let's talk next December and see if you want to give that to him. I got no idea where that's, where that's going. But here's the crazy part of the whole deal. And this is not, again, to build me up. This is, again, to show the working of God. So I said to the guy, no, I'm not going to accept the gift. Leave. The next day, literally the next day in the mail, my wife opens the mail, hands me the mail and says, what's this? In the mail, $5,000 check. Not from this family or anyone else, but from someone completely unrelated to the situation and saying, here's for your adoption. That's God's people that have hearts have been transformed, that from the heart flows the desire to do good for others. This morning, what God wants for you is not meaningless activity. God wants your heart. God's in the heart business. He wants your inner being to adore Him. And from that is going to flow activity that's going to boggle your own mind. That's going to boggle your family's mind. This morning, as you prepare for the new year, would you make it your new year's resolution to pursue a healthy heart? And here's the beauty of Christianity, the amazing thing of Christianity. 
We pursue a healthy heart by not looking inward. We pursue a healthy heart by looking outward to Jesus Christ, the one outside of us that heals our heart and nurtures our heart. And so if you want to have a healthy heart in 2018, it begins by looking outside of yourself saying, God, nurture me. God, shape and form me. And if you go throughout 2018 and you say, God, work on my heart and your activity is an outflow of that, Jesus is going to very simply say, well done, good and faithful servant. But be careful. Be very careful. Jesus has said once and has said many times over, in vain, in vain do you worship me. Let it not be said of us because we ask God to transform our hearts so that there is consistency between what is inside of us and what is flowing around us. Let's pray. Gracious and everlasting God, we come before you this morning and God, we acknowledge that oftentimes we go through the motions. Sometimes we just show up because it's what we're supposed to do. And God, we ask that you be at work in our hearts. That you'd create within us a consistency of what's inside of us and what flows from us. Make us aware, O oh Lord, of any motions that we're just going through. And we ask, Lord, that you would transform our hearts. That you'd create in us hearts of purity, hearts of holiness hearts of generosity. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would own our heart, that you would own our being. God, we pray this morning that our worship would be pleasing to you. Not because of the greatness of the preacher, not because of the greatness of the musicians, but because of the hearts that are gathered here in this place. We pray that this would be an aroma every Sunday, Lord, that pleases you because of where we are oriented, because of where we are focused pray that you'd have your way among us today. Put our focus, put our attention on you alone. In Jesus' name.